will be streaming live soon. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Bonfa Ministries, and haven't been here for a while because I've been in Brazil. Um, good to be back, and uh, we wish Kathy Fallon a happy birthday today. Kathy's in Brazil um, planting a bunch of beautiful flowers at the mission. She sent me a whole bunch of pictures of flowers she's going to plant there to make to beautify the place. So happy birthday, Kathy. We've been, um, I, we've been in the book of John, it seems like We've been here a while, but actually we've just begun John's Gospel, and gosh, I have so much I want to share. I'd like to sort of set the stage, really, for this for this book, because it's so unique out of all the Gospels. Um, so I've got my handy-dandy little book that I love so much, my mom's Haley's Bible handbook that she studied a lot, and it just has so many fascinating things to say about this Gospel of John, so I'm going to be sharing here and there as we go. Um, it says the author, John, does not identify himself till he comes to the end of the book in chapter 21, where he states that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, that's John 13 and John 22. That is John the Apostle, most intimate earthly friend of Jesus. But beyond that, here's something that I didn't know. I don't know, maybe you guys did, but John's father's name was Zebedee. That's found in Matthew 4:21. His mother seems to have been Salome. That's found in Matthew 27, who by comparing John 19:25 seems to have been a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If so, John is a cousin of Jesus. Did you know that? I did not know that. Um and being about the same age, must have known him from childhood. So that kind of explains the intimacy, the closeness, as opposed to the other disciples that, that Jesus had. He was a businessman of some means. He was one of five partners in a fishing business that employed hired servants, Mark 1, 16 through 20. Besides his fishing business in Capernaum, he had a house in Jerusalem, John 19:27, and was a personal acquaintance of the high priest. All of this was new stuff to me for the Apostle John. He was a disciple of John the Baptist, John 1.35 and verse 40. If he was a cousin of Jesus, as seems apply, implied in the passages above, then he was also related to John the Baptist <clears throat> and must have known of the angelic announcements about John and Jesus. So when John the Baptist appeared, crying that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, John, the son of Zebedee, was ready to take his stand with him. On the Baptist's testimony, John, this our John here, 
became an immediate disciple of Jesus, John 1.35, one of the first five disciples, and returned with Jesus to Galilee. Jesus nicknamed him the Son of Thunder. That's Mark 3.17. Recall that? Which seems to imply that he had a vehement, violent temper, but this he brought under control. (laughs) Praise God. He was one of the three inner circle disciples and was recognized as the one closest to Jesus. Five times he is spoken of as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He and Peter became the recognized leaders of the twelve. And though utterly different in disposition, they were generally together. John 20, Acts 3.1, and many others. So, anyway, that just... That was fascinating information to me about John. The Gospel of John does stand apart from other Gospels. It testifies who Jesus really is. And isn't this often when you introduce somebody to Jesus, you tell them some advice, read the Gospel of John. Because he, really the Gospel of John um, talks less about what Jesus did and more about what he said. More about what he said about himself. So if you want to hear from Jesus' own lips, who did he say he was? The Gospel of John is what records that. Um, it, so we have talked about the account of, John's, of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, which is one of the only events that's recorded in all four Gospels. We've talked about the meeting of Jesus with Nathaniel how we see Jesus moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit right there, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, discernment. And then we have studied the, um, the wedding at Cana and the miracle at the wedding of Cana of uh, making the wine, water into wine, right? Um, again, Haley's, let me just <clears throat> read something there that I thought was good. It says that, Cana was about four miles northeast of Nazareth. Nathanael was of Cana. That's John 21, 2. He did not have a very high opinion of his neighbor town, Nazareth. Remember, he said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? The marriage evidently was in the home of some friend or relative of either Jesus or Nathanael. Here's the significance of the miracle. What we also have um, as we look at Jesus coming on the scene, we also, it doesn't record it in the book of, of, of John, but in the other Gospels it does. He has just spent 40 days in the desert being subjected to everything, every suggestion Satan was capable of offering as to how he should use his miraculous powers. Satan constantly tempting him, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? How he should use his miraculous powers. And he and Jesus had steadfastly refused to use them for his own personal need. Then from the wilderness, he goes almost directly to the wedding, the baptism, the wilderness. Then the next time we see Jesus, he's at this wedding. And though his subsequent miracles were wrought largely to relieve suffering, this first miracle was done at a wedding feast on a festive occasion, ministering to human joy, making people happy. As if Jesus wanted to announce right at the start that 
What he was now introducing into the world was no religion of asceticism, but a religion of natural joy. And it was also Jesus' blessing on marriage. So let's, uh, those are just some thoughts that I thought were worth sharing. So we're in John chapter 2, and we've had the, the miracle. And so then we read in verse 11, John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of his signs, okay, I have to start this over again. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Immediately that jumped at me. His disciples believed in him. They did. They did. They saw this miracle and they believed in him. But um, we're going to see that three times in the passage we're going to study today, it's going to talk about people believing in Jesus. And I, I was just thinking of how, what a progressive term that is, you know. Because, yes, they believed in him, but as we see through their actions in the Gospels, not 100%. Would you agree? <laughs> so, you know, it isn't like, one day you meet Jesus and you just flip a switch and your belief is perfect. Your belief is um, com- is completely mature. You hear what I'm saying? So it says, and they believed in him, like, done. But that's not necessarily true. It is progressive. It's, um, it isn't like one day you meet Jesus and you have perfect faith. It has a beginning, but that faith that believing in Jesus is imperfect, and that's normal. And I want to encourage you with that, that wherever you are, whether you have just now met our Lord and Savior and you're just starting to get to know him, or whether you've been walking with him for a long time, this is, a, this is something that grows and matures and something that God deals with us all of our lives. So when I saw that they believed in him, I thought, yeah, they did. But they had a long way to go, just like just like we do, and that's that's okay. Um, let me ask you, Matthew, John, Cindy, anybody who wants to, is your believing in Jesus different today than it was five years ago, or ten years ago? Anybody want to speak to that at all? <clears throat> Besides, yes, <laughs> everybody said yes. <laughs> The nature of the Holy Spirit is to teach. Mm-hmm. And so the more taught we are throughout the years, uh, we develop. Right. Uh, and uh, someone that does not receive the right, the proper teaching, they, they actually become dwarfed. <coughs> meaning there are areas in their lives that never change. Yeah. They're the same. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing to see somebody who has been, had the opportunity of receiving discipleship right. uh, change, you know. Uh, and that's what uh, Brazil huh. does because it proposes people to move from where they are to where they need to be. Right. Yeah. And I just love that uh, about RBM is we're not, you know, <coughs> everybody's a work in progress. But if somebody's moving forward, then we're happy. Yeah. Because nobody's got perfect faith, right? so to speak, as you're saying. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, if if we're moving forward, if we're growing, then you know, then we're winning. Yeah. Amen. Heidi, please. That's great. I believe your faith can mature even more when you see his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So seeing, seeing his work helps as well. Right. So this was the first public work they saw, and it says they believed in him. But it's just the beginning. They are going to see him and see him, and their faith will grow. So all good points. That's great. So after this miracle at Cana, then, we have a brief sojourn in Capernaum. And <clears throat> good old... Haley here says, this was sort of a family visit, including his mother and brothers, probably to the home of John or Peter to lay plans for his future work. About a year later, Capernaum became his main residence. He did no more miracles in Galilee until after his return from the Judean ministry. Because if we look carefully at John now, from John 13 until uh, John 4, 3, Jesus goes to Judea for a period of time. Um, This is told only in John's gospel. This is told only in John's gospel. It lasted eight months, beginning at Passover, because it's going to say right here in verse 13, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he has the miracle in Cana. He goes to Capernaum. That's in verse 12. And then in verse 13, begins an eight-month period in Judea. And um, it includes the cleansing of the temple, which we're going to talk about today, the visit of Nicodemus, and ministry by the Jordan. And then he returns to Galilee. <clears throat> and John is the only one who gives us that chronology of his eight months in Judea. <clears throat> so let's read about what happens as he goes to Jerusalem. Verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I'm in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge or a whip. He sat and he made it with his own hands, this indicates, (laughs) of cords, huh? Unbelievable, yes. He went off to a court, got some material. I mean, this was very deliberate. You think about it, he went, he got whatever was needed, and with his own hands he made a whip and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Talk about taking authority in a situation. It's verse 15. We're in John 2:15. He made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He's not being meek and quiet here, is he? The very opposite. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. What other translations, what words did he use? Is it any different? Stop making my father's house a market. <coughs> Mark, um, okay, a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Um, will someone read Psalm 69, 9? Somebody's got that. Cindy? I think Cindy has it. 
<coughs> for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So it says his, his uh, disciples remembered that that was prophetically written. Zeal for your house consumes me. <laughs> so as they are believing in this man, as they are watching the things he does, this is something that comes to their mind from their study of Scripture, that he is a man full of zeal, of very strong conviction about his father's house. Um, back to Haley's here. Um, it says, in this, in this particular account, there's two times that Jesus cleanses the temple. This at the beginning of his public ministry. The other at the close. And that one is told in Matthew 21. So he does this sort of thing twice. In this time, this account, he drove out the cattle. In the other, he drove out the traders. In this, he called the temple a house of merchandise. In the other, he called it a den of robbers. He had, no doubt, already become appalled at the unspeakable godlessness of the hierarchy that ruled here in the temple in the name of God. Um, And the formal opening act of his public work, which he intended as a sign to the nation that he was the Messiah, was expected. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. I think John has that for us. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Isn't that interesting? That's Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> um, I always think of this in terms of his second coming, you know, in terms of the refinement and washing like fuller soap. But it is very clearly stated here in Malachi that he is going to come and he's going to do a cleansing. Um, <clears throat> so this is this is just part of the what the disciples are getting to understand who their Lord really is. Um, so this action of making the whip, driving out the sheep and the ox, and pouring out the coins, overturning the tables, is open and utter defiance of the ruling clique whose antagonism antagonism was immediately aroused and which Jesus seemed to never care to pacify. (laughs) Thus he begun his ministry and thus he closed it. Again, he did this once at the beginning and he did this again at the end, Matthew 21. So let's let's continue here. Um, Matthew, um, I'm sorry, John 4, 14. He found in the temple. Okay, we're going to continue on. We just read verse 17. Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? They're not in tune at all with what he's saying, right? And they're being sarcastic. It took 46 years, and you're going to build it in three. They're just not at all um, clued in to who he is or what the message he's trying to get across. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, obviously. Now look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus spoke it. I saw that again. They believed. They believed. So it's, it's a progression, isn't it? Each time they saw a word fulfilled, an Old Testament scripture, they see Jesus' actions and they say, that fits. That fits with what we understood from the Old Testament prophets. Their faith grew. And that's part of the, if you want your faith to grow. You know, this is kind of my theme today. I know I'm covering a lot, but that's kind of my theme is when it says they believed. If you want to believe and you want to believe more and you want your your faith to be more solid, you want your faith to be more um, firm and unshakable, part of that is the Word of God itself, Scripture. It's not just what you experience. It's not just great sermons you hear on Sunday. It is when the Bible clicks and you go, the Bible said that. And see, this is what the disciples, in their journeying with Jesus, they're saying, oh, we remember the word, the scripture said that about the coming Messiah. So this is part, this is a very essential part. If you want your belief to grow and to become more firm and more stable and more just on a rock than scripture, when you see scripture being perfectly fulfilled in the Lord, you see scripture being applied and you say, well, God's word says that. So I just want to exhort you and encourage you that that is part of the work of the word in your life is to establish your faith. Amen. Read uh, Psalm 1610. I think, Greg, you've got that. Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610 says, For you... For you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you permit your holy one to see Over during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. Just as Heidi just said, as they watched him doing things, people began to believe. So we have not only a beginning of believing for his for the disciples, but a beginning of believing for many others, which by the way, many will fall away. <laughs> Some of these will be ones who cry crucify him one day 
<coughs> but it is the beginning here of a body that extends, a body of Christ is what I'm talking about. This is what uh, Heidi, Heidi. Heidi said yes. that what he did went along with what he believed. So the miracles, when they saw. They began to believe. Yeah. And so what we have here when it says many believed in his name, we have the beginning, even before Pentecost, of a body of Christ that goes beyond the 12 that hung out with him all the time. So, you know, this is happening. This, this began happening here, and it's happening around the world. People are beginning at one point in their life to believe in Jesus. You know where that's happening more than any other nation on earth? Some people know because I've been talking about it. Iran. The church is growing faster in Iran than any other country. People are coming to believe in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> yes. Um, so, but, here, but, this is important. Verse 24 and 25, we're going to close. But Jesus, the, the verse itself starts with but. <laughs> but Jesus, in response to all of this, the disciples believed. Many people were beginning to believe. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is really important. Jesus' response to those who are beginning to believe in him. Does Jesus want people to believe? Of course he does. Right here in John um, the Gospel of John, verse, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He wants us to, become his, to be brought back into the family, to be adopted back into the family that was lost through sin. He wants us to become children of God. This is his desire. But here's the important part. He's done this amazing thing that caught everybody's attention, making a whip, driving out cattle, throwing out coins, turning over tables. Um, and, and then as he continues to do signs and do works, as Heidi said, people begin to believe in him. But that didn't have the effect on Jesus it might have on other leaders. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? It means that Jesus looked to no man to get the validation, the affirmation, the love that the human soul craves. He looked to no man to say, oh, I guess I have a ministry. Yeah, People are believing I, in me. They like I've been, me. I've been saying to you that when you, respect, when you have respect of persons, the prophetic dies. You always say that of you know, I'm not a popsicle for you to lick. I'm not running for Congress. This is things Rick always says. Jesus was not running for Congress. Is he glad that people believe? Of course. But he did not entrust his identity, his act, anything based upon what people thought of him. Entrust means to put confidence or to build on as a foundation. His identity, his sense of being loved, his sense of worth, Affirmation, validation, 
his mission, his ministry came only from his father. It wasn't based on the reaction of others. And this is a cautionary word, especially to those of you who are feeling a call to ministry and you're, and you're wanting validation of that. You're, the first question sort of is, well, do people like me? <laughs> are people going, if I'm going to be a leader, are people going to follow? <laughs> are they going to like me enough to follow? Because we want people, of course we want people to believe, just like Jesus. We want people to believe, don't we? That's why we do what we do. That's why we go overseas. That's why we do discipleship trips. We want people to believe. We want them to grow in their faith. But um, between, uh, for all the way from the changing of water to wine, clear to a ministry of, Whip and destruction of evil in the temple. (laughs) Whatever it is God has called us to do, whatever stage we're at, our call, our ministry, the decisions we make in ministry, you know, and our, our sense of identity cannot be based upon the reactions or even the seeming belief of man. That can be very fickle because, like I said, belief has a start. But some of these people fell away. Um, Belief has a start. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Just look to him. Don't look to how others are reacting to you. And you will be, you'll be safe. And you'll be like Jesus because that's what it said he did. He did not need anyone to bear witness concerning him. He knew what was in man. Amen. Hope you got something out of this today. I I know I did. It taught me a bunch of stuff I didn't really see before. So I feel very blessed to have been able to teach on this section today. And we'll see you tomorrow. Happy birthday, Kathy, and happy 10 years with RBM, John Dunn. (coughs) Woo-hoo.